So Lent is about remembering and reliving Jesus' journey to the cross and then on to the empty tomb. It's a journey from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from lament to hope. And so this morning, we're going to be making our last turn around the track, and we're quickly moving towards the finish line of this journey. This Sunday, Palm Sunday, we enter into the final week of this arduous pilgrimage. Somebody smart once said that really the four Gospels in the Bible, they're all passion narratives with a long introduction, and we're certainly going to see that that is true for Luke's Gospel today. If you're reading through Luke, you see as early as chapter 9, you read the words, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So really, think about almost half of Luke's entire gospel up to this point in our passage has been about Jesus' journey to the cross, towards this climactic moment in human history where he dies for sinners and is raised from the dead. In Luke's gospel, Luke would have us turn toward the cross even as early as Jesus' own infancy, uh, when Jesus is taken into the temple, you might remember when Simeon tells this to Mary. He says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed. And so in our passage today in Luke 19, we finally come to this dramatic scene that Luke has really been heading towards since the very beginning. In our passage today, we see how Jesus is hailed as Israel's king as he makes his way into the city of Jerusalem. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about what exactly it means that Jesus is the true king over his people and his world. So we're going to look at three different aspects of who King Jesus is and what he does. Three things about who Jesus is as our king and what he does. So the first thing we see is is right off the bat uh, in our passage, and it's really a summary of our whole passage. The first thing I want us to see about King Jesus is that the king has come to draw near to his people. The king has come to draw near to his people. This statement again really summarizes our, our whole story today, and it's really at the very heart of the gospel message itself. People of God, we do not serve a king who reigns and rules from afar. A God who just watches us from a distance, but one who rolls up his sleeves and he gets dirty and he's willing to become intimately involved in the lives of his people. We serve a king who ultimately gave his body over to his enemies and spilled his own blood for the sake of his people. And really the entire gospel of Luke is about what happens when King Jesus draws near to his people. What happens in Luke when King Jesus comes close? To sinners. We see him give hope and joy to suffering people. We see him call sinners to repentance. We see one miracle of mercy after the other as King Jesus draws near to the poor and the weak and those who are outcasts. We see him overturn the, and disrupt the false, corrupted religion that began to infest Israel and its religious leadership. In King Jesus' life and teaching, we see that he's come to topple and overthrow all the other rival kingdoms of this world. He's come to throw down the proud and to raise up the humble and the needy. In Luke's gospel, we see that King Jesus 
has come to create a kingdom who is, that is populated by a new people, a distinct people, a people who forsake their sin and stake their entire lives on the love and the forgiveness of God. King Jesus has come to create a people who love deeply because they have been forgiven deeply. People who look crazy in the eyes of the world because they seek to love their enemies and to do good to those who hate them. He's come to create a generous people, a people who gladly give of themselves and their possessions because they're certain that they have a heavenly treasure that surpasses anything that they could ever acquire this side of heaven. When King Jesus draws near, he shows us the very heart of God, that we belong to the God who gives his compassion and mercy to lost prodigals who come home, people who are filled with the shame of sin and failure. The poet and author, uh, a guy I like to read, a guy named Malcolm God, he says this best when he describes the people of God's kingdom as beggars crowned with glory. Beggars crowned with glory. To skip ahead to the end of our passage later, we will see how Jesus weeps when he draws near to the city of David because he knows that the city will later be destroyed just a few decades after his own death. And Jesus says this will be an act of judgment because the majority of the city did not know the time of their visitation. While the statement is obviously within this negative context, we can't fail to see the love of God behind what Jesus says here. That God in Christ has come to dwell amongst his people, to draw near to his people in this miraculous way. John's gospel says that Jesus came to his own people and also that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, again, we hear this beautiful prophecy from Zechariah that begins by him saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then at the very end of this same prophecy, we get this moving poetic image. It essentially says the same thing about how God has come in Christ to visit his people. We read, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Okay, that's the first thing we see about King Jesus in our passage, that the king has come to draw near to his own people. Let's move on now and look at the second truth that we see about King Jesus. The second thing I want us to see about King Jesus is that the king is in control. The king is in control. Notice our passage begins by Luke telling us how as Jesus and his disciples are making their way into the outskirts of Jerusalem, he sends ahead of him two disciples and tells them to go find a colt on which no one has ever ridden and bring it to him. He tells them if anyone asks what they're doing, they can just simply say the Lord has need of it and that this will satisfy whoever is asking about it. And so they go and they do this and they find the whole scene is exactly the way Jesus has said it would be, that the whole thing is unfolding the way he said it would. This word colt could refer to a young horse or a donkey and in light of the prophecy that Zechariah makes later, we're going to look at it. It's probably a donkey that Jesus has the two disciples go and prepare for him. Again, so what we see all throughout this passage is that King Jesus is in control, and we know this, this must be true because King Jesus is fully God. Notice about half of this entire passage in the triumphal entry scene 
is about explaining how Jesus was fully in control of the events of this final week of his earthly ministry that's going to culminate in his suffering and death and resurrection. Because Jesus is fully God, he's in charge of everything that takes place in his and our own lives. And again, if you read all four of the Gospels, all four authors spell out in detail, especially how these last events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they all take place exactly according to the unfolding plan of God. It's interesting that the closer you get to Jesus' death and resurrection, the more the Gospel writers, they belabor this point. They spell it out and they say it again and again that everything is taking place exactly the way that God had planned You see this in our own passage, right, where Jesus arranges that this donkey uh, would be found by the disciples. Think about the institution of the Lord's Supper, how the disciples go. They follow Jesus' instructions to find this room to celebrate the Passover, and they find uh, this place that's been prepared exactly the way Jesus said it would be. Think about how Jesus predicts what Peter is going to do ahead of time. Three times, he says, Peter will deny him. So the gospel writers want to stress to us That every detail here, all the misery that's coming, the suffering, the evil, the loss that takes place in Jesus' final days, all these things happen not by accident or simply because sin and evil got the upper hand. No, all these things took place according to the unfolding plan of God. People of God, God's providence extends to every single detail of our lives. God is writing every last detail of all of our stories. And so often he writes our stories in ways that we would never choose for ourselves. Sickness, abuse, divorce, deprivation, death, abandonment, rejection. Who among us would choose these experiences and so many other painful things that could happen in our lives if we were the ones who were writing the stories of our lives? While our suffering obviously is not the same as Jesus's, no one's suffering atones for sin. Jesus' suffering does give us the pattern of how do we submit every aspect of our lives to God. How to entrust ourselves to the sovereign plan of God, even if that plan includes great suffering and loss in your own life. Jesus' suffering and death teaches us that nothing is outside of God's good, wise plan of salvation, not even something as terrible as the unjust murder of the perfect, righteous Son of God. So that means that God, in some mysterious but certain way, will incorporate the worst parts of your life into his good, wise plan of salvation that he is enacting for you. Jesus' suffering and death is our ultimate assurance that God's good providence over every part of our life extends to everything, even the parts of life that hurt the most. And to quote the Heidelberg Catechism, that God watches over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head without the will of our Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for our salvation. And as we take up our own crosses, and follow Jesus as he commanded. God makes us into people who more and more are able to say along with Jesus in the midst of the suffering and loss, not my will, but yours be done. 
Okay, let's move on in our passage. Let's move on to verse 35 now. What do we see here? We start to see the scene unfold, just like we said, according to everything Jesus has already said would happen. All the details in this part of our passage are going to highlight Jesus' kingship in one way or another. We're told in verse 35 that Jesus' disciples put their cloaks on this donkey and they set Jesus on it, giving us this picture of Jesus being enthroned by his people. And then in verse 36, we see people throw their cloaks on the road, again, something which is rooted deep in Old Testament history. And as Jesus makes his way into the city, coming down from the Mount of Olives, we're told that this whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. People also begin shouting out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. People of God, do you, do you get the sense of the joy in this scene? As this group of disciples makes their way into Jerusalem with Jesus, we see this spontaneous, exuberant worship service begin. In this scene, we see the presence of a truth that shows up all throughout the Bible, how God's people rejoice whenever the king comes to his people. We see this in Zechariah 9, a passage we're going to look at in here just another minute or two. We saw this earlier in our scripture reading from the Old Testament, Psalm 47, where we see the psalmist command God's people to clap your hands and shout to God with loud songs of joy. And why should we do this? Because we're told that the Lord is a great king over all the earth. We see the same thing throughout the book of Psalms. Again, in Psalm 95, we're told to come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And again, the psalmist tells us why we do this. Because the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. Throughout the scriptures, God's people cannot help but respond with joyful worship whenever they get near the king of all the earth. You also get the sense that a number of people in this crowd had seen firsthand the power and glory of God revealed in Jesus. This is a crowd who likely had experienced firsthand the grace and mercy of God as they had seen Jesus do miracle after miracle and do these incredible things. This crowd was comprised of people who had their suffering relieved by just a touch or a word from Jesus. This crowd was made up of people who were once hungry, and then they had their bellies stuffed with food because of Jesus' provision. These are people who likely had undergone a deep transformation because of the presence of Jesus through his teaching and preaching and through their personal interaction with him. These are people who had encountered Jesus and they had their sorrow turned to joy, their sins forgiven, their dignity as image bearers restored as Jesus lifted the yoke of sin and suffering and he reversed the effects of the fall wherever he went. Some of those in this crowd probably had seen a widow's only son restored back to life. Some of these people had seen demon-possessed people set free from incredible bondage to suffering and evil. This crowd would have been made up of men and women and boys and girls and rich and poor and Gentiles and Jews, people in upper social circles and those who would have been considered outcasts. The spontaneous worship service includes people who are eyewitnesses to the power and glory of God, people who just couldn't help proclaiming and talking about who Jesus is and what he had accomplished in the lives of his people. 
Also, even though Luke doesn't explicitly quote from the Old Testament, unlike Matthew and John's account of this passage, we see reverberations of various Old Testament scriptures all throughout what we read this morning, especially from places like 2 Kings 9, Psalm 118, and Zechariah 9. One of the things we see in our passage is that Jesus really is presented as a king, like the kings of the Old Testament, only in a much greater capacity. Jesus is really presented as a greater Jehu. Jehu was a king in Israel during the time of Elisha. And we read that after he's anointed king, the people throw their cloaks on the ground before him as they proclaim Jehu as king. If you know anything about Jehu, he goes on to be this righteous king who enacts judgment on the enemies of God. The prophet Zechariah prophesies how one day God will send his king to his people, but this king will come in humility, will come riding on a donkey. The prophet Zechariah says this in chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey? Zechariah then goes on to mention how this coming king will speak peace to the nations and how his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what we see here is Jesus clearly fulfilling all of these prophecies as he makes his entry into Jerusalem. Also, this proclamation that the crowd makes about Jesus is also significant. This statement that they say before him, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes straight from Psalm 118, one of the psalms that the pilgrims would have said or, or sung as they made their way into Jerusalem every year for the Feast of Passover. Only the significant thing here is that in the original Psalm 118, it actually reads, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase we use in our own worship service. But notice what has happened here, that for the crowds, this word he has been changed to king, making it undeniably clear that Jesus' disciples in the scene understood him to be a political ruler, a king who was expected to reign and rule in Israel. And of course, what the crowds fail to see here, and what the Roman authorities cannot see when they later use this title, King of the Jews, to humiliate Jesus, is that Jesus, the true king of God's people in the world, is a king like no other. He's a king who primarily displays his power over sin and death by his willingness to do some things which are very unkingly in the eyes of the world, by his willingness to lay down his own life and drink down to the last drop the cup of suffering that the Father had prepared for him. In just a few short days, Jesus will show the world what true kingly power, what true kingly authority look like and how God defeats sin and evil not by humiliating others, but by taking on the humiliation and suffering of death himself. And you get the sense, don't you, that the Pharisees, at least in their own twisted way, have some sense that uh, Jesus is different. They know enough about Jesus to know that his version of kingship flies in the face of everything they and most others in Israel wanted in a king. They did not want a king who would come in humility. They did not want a king who would oppose their self-righteousness and extend the mercy of God to sinners and outcasts. The Pharisees understood on some level that Jesus is about a kingdom that is not like the kingdoms of this world. They just hated this instead of seeing it as good news. And so Luke tells us in verse 39 that some of the Pharisees in the crowd say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples when they see the crowd say these things as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. 
And Jesus responds to this statement by saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So what Jesus is doing here is giving this very powerful indictment that sets us up for his lament over Jerusalem in verses 41 through 44. What he's doing is basically saying that the rocks know something that Israel's religious leaders refuse to see for themselves. That Jesus is God's rightful, long-awaited son of David. Israel's final prophesied king who would bring peace and salvation to his people. What Jesus wants to do here is highlight the spiritual blindness, the hardness of the Pharisees by essentially saying that the stones perceive and understand him better than they themselves do. Okay, so that brings us to our third and final thing about King Jesus that we see in our passage. The final thing I want us to see about King Jesus, we see this in our last set of verses, verses 41 through 44, is that the king is fully human. The king is fully human. We see this in the fact that as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, he weeps, he cries over the city. He says these incredibly tragic words. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Jesus goes on to say, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In these verses, Jesus is undeniably prophesying an event which will take place just a number of years after Jesus' own death. He's referring to the total annihilation of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman army, something that will take place in 70 AD, about 30 plus years after Jesus' own death. This was a horrific historical moment in Israel history where the Roman general Titus actually does what Jesus says. He surrounds the city, destroys it, after several years of Jewish unrest and rebellion against Roman rule. You can actually read about the details of this, if you want to, from first century historians, uh, guys like Josephus. So here in our passage, Jesus actually prophesies the details of this coming event. And he, descri- he describes his future catastrophe as judgment on the people of the city because they did not know the time of their visitation indicating that their rejection of him is going to lead to this terrible, just judgment of God coming to them. And so in verse 41, you see this dramatic shift quickly in the overall mood of our entire passage. As Jesus draws near the city, the scene turns from joyful celebration into a mournful lament for Jesus. In these verses, we see Jesus act as God's final great prophet to his people as he predicts and proclaims God's impending judgment that is coming to his people who will reject him. Jesus references actually this coming destruction of Jerusalem at least two other times in Luke's gospel. He says this once before our passage, then actually during the scene of the crucifixion itself, Jesus will say something very similar. In Luke 13, Jesus gives this similar lament saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And later, as Jesus makes his way to the cross, you see a number of women who are mourning, falling behind him. And Jesus says to them, not to weep for him, but for themselves and for their children. So what we see here is that Jesus is no stoic king. He is not a king who is emotionally cold and unfeeling in the face of human sin. 
He does not live a life of faith and obedience in some emotionless, detached kind of way. No, this is a king who deeply feels and one who does something uniquely human in the face of this scene. He cries. Really what we see Jesus do throughout the Gospels is to teach us how to be human beings. People of God, sin wants to make us into something that is less than human. But Jesus shows the way to be fully human. He is the perfect image of God who shows us fallen image bearers how to bear God's image in a broken world. Because of the fall, human beings don't actually know how to be human beings. So we desperately need the second Adam, the perfect human, to show us what is God's design for humanity. And so we are lost as to what it even means to be a human being if we do not look to the Lord Jesus. But Jesus is God's perfect mirror, the person we look to in order to know who we are as a human being and what we should be as a human being, as men and women made in the image of God who have to live by faith in a broken, fallen world. And so Jesus shows us here that an important way that we image God in a broken world is through this experience of godly grief, godly sorrow in the face of sin. Our passage is teaching us several things here that were really important. One is that this emotional experience of grief It's an essential part of being a human being. This is not an exclusively masculine or feminine trait. This is a a very important human trait, something that all human beings must do if they want to conform their humanity to the perfect humanity of Jesus. Uh, I know this is probably just the counselor in me talking, but the older I get, the more I see how how difficult this is for a lot of people. The more I believe that most Christians need to cry more than we do. People of God, a lot of us are still holding out hope that there's a way to live in a broken world by being something other than a human being. And some of us need to see that when we reject God's design for our own humanity, specifically this ability to do godly emotions and godly grief, then what we're really doing is making war against your own soul in ways that will harden yourself to God and to people. And doing this is not the life of faith that we see modeled for us in Jesus' perfect humanity. I would say living this way actually only increases our misery because it makes us cut off. Cut off from embracing God's love. Cut off from people who can love and care for us. People of God rejecting God's design for our humanity makes us into people who are dishonest and alone. But Jesus shows us here another way, a better way to be human. And this way includes this ability to grieve over the things that Jesus himself grieved over. Okay, what else can we learn from Jesus' lament over Jerusalem? I've got two quick things here I want to mention as we begin to close our time in God's word today. First, Jesus also shows us what posture to take towards our enemies. He shows us what posture to take towards our enemies. Sadly enough, we live in the age of rage, don't we? The age where often the people who shout the loudest with the most vitriol get the most attention. Ours is the age where you can get canceled before anyone's actually listened to what you said. We live in an age where the pressure feels constant to basically do the complete opposite of what the Bible says. 
to become people who are slow to listen and quick to speak and quick to anger, and to consider it a strength and a virtue to hate our enemies. But notice that Jesus' posture here is is not like this really at all. He does not have this posture of raising a clenched fist with clenched jaws. Instead, what does he do? He weeps when he considers the tragedy of his own wayward people. People of God, isn't it an incredible thing that the God who ordains all things is the God who weeps over the tragedy of human sin? And who actually does that? In our age of rage, pretty much nobody, right? When was the last time that you saw someone oppose someone else, either in the political or cultural arena, and do so with tears in his or her eyes? This would be a singularly memorable experience for us. And it's virtually unheard of. But this is what we see Jesus do in our passage, something that Paul imitates himself. When Paul writes in Philippians 3.18, he says, For many of whom... I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. People of God, if we want to take our cues from Jesus here and his lament over Jerusalem, then we have to see that our posture towards our enemies matters just as much as our opposition to them. Jesus shows us what it's like to love our enemies and how to avoid becoming like them even while we oppose them. The final thing, one final thing I want us to see today is that this scene leads us to the truth of the gospel itself, something that our entire faith rests on. Because even after reading our passage today, thank God, we know the rest of the story. We know that out of the ashes of a smoldering Jerusalem, our risen King Jesus raised from the dead a new Israel for himself, a new people who would be faithful instead of faithless, a bride who through the work of the Holy Spirit would one day become a pure, spotless city, the new Jerusalem that one day will be forever joined to her husband and to her king. People of God, you are God's new Jerusalem. You are that people. You are God's holy temple. You are living stones who instead of being torn apart are being assembled together into God's spiritual house of worship. So live in ways that constantly seek to demonstrate to our dark world who you belong to, to our crucified and risen king. Demonstrate how you live, that you belong to a king who rules by giving himself away and who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. People of God, as we approach remembering the greatest events in world history this week, look to our King Jesus once again to know who you are and what matters most in life. Look to our King to know peace for your weary soul and hope for a fractured world. Look to our King to know glory to God in the highest. Let's pray again together. Father, we praise you for your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you that he is our King. He's come to reign and rule over us. Father, constantly draw us back to yourself to help us see why this is good news for us and for our world. Father, be with us now. Help us commune and continue to fellowship with our risen King. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.